Halloweeny, dear listeners, and welcome once again to Deep Spinach. Tonight, we are so privileged to have members of Colorado's very own Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society with us. Welcome, Brian Bonner and Bob Lewis. Well, thank you for having us on. I was so excited to see your organization pop up when I was looking for paranormal investigators. But what caught my attention was that your organization prides itself on using real scientific methods in order to get to the bottom of hauntings and disturbances around the Front Range. Can you tell us how you came to form the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society? So, uh, kind of a a really long, long story cut back. Growing up, I was interested in the paranormal and the horror movies and that sort of stuff, but kind of from the horror movie aspect, because I, I was forced to watch horror movies as a child, so bad mom. But uh, the thing good, is... Good mom. Good mom. <laughs> Get it wrong. But the thing is, uh, after decades of being a huge horror movie buff, I discovered that a lot of these films were claiming to be based on a true story inspired by actual events that sort of stuff and because of that i wanted to look into those claims and as it turns out back in 1999 there weren't a lot of people looking into these claims so uh the best way to do it start your own group and here we are 25 years later and and in my case it's kind of a similar story it was, uh, I didn't have the mother who got me into horror movies because my mother does not like horror movies, but I corrupted myself and watched all the horror movies, you know, snuck down and watched the midnight movies and all that. So I also came, uh, came to it beginning as a, a horror nerd and I've, I, I read and watch a lot of horror. I've written a lot of horror, but in addition to that, I have, uh, some science background. So I wanted to look into these kinds of creepy claims, but from a scientific perspective, And even though I'm not formally trained in it, I'm a bit of a history buff. And turns out history ends up being a big part of paranormal investigation because of the, the, we're looking at old locations and frequently a a lot of history has traveled through these various houses and uh, restaurants and hotels and all these different locations. So if you sort of combine those three pillars of horror, history, and science, you end up being a weird guy like me who does weird things like this. <laughs> I had a question about, you know, you know, over the course of your experience in, in doing these investigations, um, I always have this question in my mind, like we've, you know, we've seen an explosion of the internet and every time I turn around, there's like a, a somebody else is doing a paranormal video channel and, my question is like, do you think that there is an increase in the actual paranormal activity or do you think it's just more people seem to be paying attention to it? Or how do you, what do you, what's your take on this? I, I would say in terms of actual paranormal activity, it's really hard to tell because it's, it's hard to separate the signal from the noise just in terms of the number of people talking about it. For sure, there are a lot more people talking about it. My guess would be, just sort of putting on my philosopher's hat for for a moment, whatever paranormal activity there may be, my guess is the level of paranormal activity is probably not changing from year to year. But the the public interest in it does change from year to year. So my guess Mm -hmm. would be it's just more access to information and more people talking about it. But it's hard to say. And you you can see that happening because there's... 
there's changes over time. You'll see there's a large interest in ghostly phenomena, and then all of a sudden it goes into UFOs, then it goes into cryptids, and then it cycles back. So it's definitely... I can't imagine that all of those would, would work on some sort of a cycle. So I think it's definitely just the way that the general public perceives what's going on and the way that it's presented to them in in pop culture. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, there, so are, there are claims that could be on a cycle. You know, maybe mm -hmm. for whatever reason. That's completely speculative, but... All of them, I don't think, would be, and they all seem to to cycle that way. So I guarantee that pop culture at least plays some role. Yeah, and then I, I had another tag along question, which is when we started podcasting, when Ariel and I started podcasting, we had another show, and we had an we had a an investigator on, to, and he was saying that you know every every Halloween they saw an uptick in the number of calls you know that they would get. And do you have you found that to be the case also? It used to be, but as far as uh, like private cases, yes, and I think it's just for that reason. Because all of a sudden, people are being exposed to even more ghost content than they normally would be. Uh, the thing is, if you look at, I mean, the past 25 years that we've been doing this, I'll, I'll give you an example. When we first started, I would sit around and wait for the Halloween season to start so I could record TV shows that were involving some sort of ghostly stuff or UFO stuff. If I was to do that now, I'd just be sitting here recording 24-7 because it's non-stop now. So, yeah, I think I it's will say in, in addition to that, though, because we have had some television exposure over the years and they tend to replay some of those old programs around the Halloween season, I think from time to time somebody will watch one of those shows and they'll say, oh, these people look into this sort of thing. And when one of those airs, we probably get a slight uptick in the, the emails that we get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. So kind of going along with with that theme that, that people tend to, you were talking about how people tend to talk about all these things that are based on a true story. And you did mention that you had gone to the Stanley Hotel. How much of what people hyped the Stanley Hotel, how much was that true? Did you have any experiences when you were there? There, there were some. That's actually a chapter in our book. So I'll, I'll take the opportunity to get a plug in for our book. It's called Case Files of the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society, Volume 1, available wherever you buy books. But that's, that's a chapter in the book, and it's a, it's a bit of a long story, but we've been there a few times, and what we found is, by all means, they are capitalizing on the ghost stories, and the, the lore has grown over the years as people have just piled on, and a lot of that is just people telling stories, for sure. Uh, there were some claims there that we were able to explain naturally, some, some things that we were able to debunk. But there were also a few things there that we were able to re uh, record some strange sounds and things that we weren't able to explain. So my thinking is, with the Stanley Hotel, they do have some sort of, I guess we would say sort of naturally occurring ghost stories that sort of, the, the, that either because there are ghosts or just because of the history of the place, the lore grew up around it. There are several ghost stories that are really that really belong there and are really part of the place's uh, history. 
But then after uh, Stephen King with The Shining, and then after a bunch of the paranormal television shows, a lot of the more recent stuff, I think, has been sort of added on top after the fact. What would you say is the most haunted area in Colorado? I would say there's a few answers to that, depending on what you mean. I would say the most famous for sure would be the Stanley Hotel. And that's because it's famous because of Stephen King and all the shows have been out there and... And it's just a magnificent old hotel, so it's, it's kind of ripe for it, so it's, it's a good place. I would say the place with the most ghost stories that we've sort of been able to document, collecting from books and around the internet and sort of documenting all the ghost stories, was probably a, a, an old mansion in Denver called the Croke Patterson Mansion. Absolutely. And then the place that we, during our investigations, have seen or heard the most unusual things was a place called the Brook Forest Inn, which is a uh, sort of a hotel and event center kind of a place. And there was a time when it was actually a Microsoft training center. And when they weren't working, they let us sort of have the run of the place to do our investigations for a long time. And we were able to record a lot of just weird things around there. So Sort of really? one of those three, depending on what you mean by the question. <laughs> well, wh- did you see, did you catch anything moving by itself? Or, I mean, you <laughs> see all these videos on TikTok and all over the place, but how, you know, how often does that really happen? How, you know. A lot less than they would lead you to believe. We have seen a few of those, not, not necessarily at that location. We tend to get more audio recordings. The weird stuff we seem to see is, is more audio than video. Although there have been a few things that have moved. There are a few that have annoyed us because something moved that didn't have a camera on it, so we were never able to figure out what it was. Mm-hmm. So there, there are a few of those, but at the Brook Forest, for sure, it was mostly audio. There's some really weird audio from, from that place. Oh, absolutely. Now... Yeah. One thing, and I'll, I'll kind of give you an example here. If you are looking at somebody's claims, if they're a, a paranormal investigator, and every place they go is confirmed haunted, and they grew up in a haunted house, and all their friends' house are haunted, there there's some big red flags flying around there because it, it can't be. I mean, that just statistically something won't be haunted. But Mm. at the same time, you really have to look at their evidence, too. If they are just overwhelmed with just tons and tons of video and audio, and you really need to take a closer look because, you know, you would think with us having done this for the past 25 years, uh, we would have... uh, a lot more than we do. And we if, do have quite a bit, but it's just not, not well, like kinda, what you see from some people. Well, that's mm-hmm. the thing. I look at some, you know, they brought up TikTok or something like that. You look at somebody that just started an account there and they've been posting for six months and every place they go, there's a demon or a mm-hmm. things being thrown around. It's like, now hold on a minute. <laughs> it's not that simple. <laughs> Do you each want to share maybe one particular investigation that just kind of made you question what everything you previously understood or or just surprised you or? Uh, sure. Uh, Brian, do you have one in mind? Do you want to go first? Uh, sure. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm going to make an even broader statement here. Every investigation we go on has something unique to it, something that we discover, something, even if it's not paranormal, if it's just the, you know, the history of the location. It adds so much to, you know, our own stories, too. Because we, as Bob was saying, get to go places that most people never get to see. We get to document places that are of historic significance that may be going away because there's you know, modernization going on. So they're, they're plowing over buildings and things like that, and we're the last ones in. Uh, and on the odd chance that we do have some sort of an experience... You know, how how cool is that? So it really, every investigation, I think, is really the, the my favorite one. Every time we go do something, it's like, wow, that was just so cool that we got to do that. Now, there have been a few cases, and I know Bob will yell at me if I don't bring it up, <laughs> uh, that, and I'm, I'm going to load it a little differently than I do normally here. Uh, we had been sitting around for... I'd been up for, I don't know, 36, 40 hours straight, eating junk food, sitting in this family's house, having them tell me ghost stories about this one room that was, you know, practically the devil lived there. And then I went and sat in the dark in that room. Of course I'm going to feel something. I had the perception that something was slapping me in the face. On the camera, there is nothing there. So this goes back to our our scientific approach of there's at least two possibilities. A, there was a ghost slapping me. B, I'd set myself up psychologically and physically for my brain to do bad things to me. Both are, you know... Kind of equal at that point. It could be either or. Can I prove one or the other? No. So, you know, it's kind of cool. It felt like something slapped. Interesting. And that also led to one of my favorite illustrations in our book. We had this uh, this artist do uh, some interior illustrations for the chapters that were at private residences because we didn't want to publish photographs of the actual people or their actual houses for privacy reasons. But this one, it was a private residence, and the uh, the picture that he drew for that chapter was a picture of the ghost slapping Brian in the face, and it's <laughs> it is fun. pieces. <laughs> you know, I'm going no, to I, I guess, this book. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Please, please do it. I, I, it's not for me to say, but I'm going to say so anyway. It's a good book. <laughs> we may have but to I, come see you so that you can autograph it. <laughs> yeah, we can. We can absolutely do that. And then I guess I'll jump in and I'll share a, uh, a very different kind of a story. One of my favorites is uh, our work at Cheeseman Park, uh, which is a, it's a park uh, sort of right in the heart of Denver. I and used to live for, right by there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And for people who might not know the story, it's a very long story. This is another one where it's like 50 pages of our book, so I can't go through all the details. But the very short version, very short version is... Uh, before it was a park, it was a cemetery. It was Denver's first cemetery. And before it was a cemetery, it was a different cemetery, and it belonged to the Arapaho. And when uh, the city of Denver acquired it from the Arapaho, they said, we've, we've got two rules. 
first, don't put a cemetery there because some of our people are buried there and you don't want to have that, that conflict. And second, if you do that anyway, bury them only three feet deep because you don't want to dig up any of our people. And the city of Denver honored half of that. They put a cemetery there, but they buried people uh, shallowly so as to not dig up the Arapaho. Over the years, it fell into uh, disrepair as people sort of moved on, and they decided they were going to put a park there. And the city told people, you've got 90 days to relocate the, the bodies of your people. We're going to put a park here. And the people who knew, the people who still had people in town, they got them out. But the problem was, at the time, Denver was sort of a pass-through town, so a lot of people who were buried there, their families had moved on. There was nobody left to claim them. A lot of them had, uh, they, were, they were shallow graves. A lot of them were unmarked because the, the, the place had fallen into disrepair and the headstones were askew. There were a lot of different sections for different communities. There was, you know, a, a Masonic section, a Jewish section, a Chinese section, a society section, a potter's field, all this stuff going on. And there's a whole story in terms of the process of trying to turn it into a park. And you'll hear tales of the evil undertaker that was chopping up the bodies to put them into smaller caskets and things, which mm. turns out to not be entirely true because he, there was a casket shortage and the city basically said, we have all these children's caskets. We'll pay you extra to do what you need to do. So he wasn't wow. as evil as people make him out to be, but yes, he was chopping up bodies to put them into smaller caskets at the city's request. The newspapers got hold of all, all of that, and it became a political nightmare for everybody, and they finally said, we're sealing this. If you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. And so they ended up building the park over a bunch of the bodies that were still left behind. And there are, by estimates vary from sort of two to 5,000 bodies still under Cheatsman Park. We're thinking about oh, wow. 3,000 is probably the, the most accurate number. But... Several years, and of course that leads to a bunch of ghost stories, so we've looked into the ghost stories and all that, but the real heart of the investigation that we did was several years ago, uh, they were doing some maintenance in the park and they dug up a few of the bodies, and for humorous reasons that I, I won't go into for reason, <laughs> to, because we just don't have time, uh, the media got word of it, and so then we got word of it and we called up the medical examiner's office and said, you know, we heard you've uh, dug up some bodies in Cheeseman Park. We'd like to bring in a team of forensic anthropologists from the local university to examine the bodies and see what we can learn about who these people were. And so we worked uh, with the medical examiner's office, the, uh, the forensic anthropologists at uh, Denver's Metro State University, and then we were there to document the process, and we got to examine five of the skeletons and learn a lot of history about who some of these people were. Wow. Based on the, based on the injuries and things that they had, we could figure out uh, their, their, their sex, their ethnicity, uh, in some cases what their career likely was, what they did for work. Based on illnesses and things, we were able to figure out how some of them might have uh, died. And these were unmarked graves that are a few people among thousands that are sort of forgotten. So wow. one of the things, it's one of my favorites because that's one of the places where we were really able to do something that wasn't just looking at ghost stories, but real scientific work that's relevant for historians, for anthropologists, all kinds of people. So that's one of my favorites. 
We hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Brian Bonner and Bob Lewis of the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society. Don't miss our bonus Halloween episode, an extended interview with Brian and Bob, where you'll find out about real-life events behind some of the spookiest horror films. And if that's not enough, you can also check out some of our guests' numerous other projects, including the Do You Like Scary Movies podcast, the Phobophile YouTube channel, and of course the new book, Case Files of the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society, Volume 1, available from Polymath Press. All links are in this episode's show notes. And remember to check out Deep Spinach Tuesday, October 31st, Halloween, for our extended interview bonus episode. Deep Spinach is a production of the Javi Media Network, on the web at javimedia.net. Have a question or comment? Send us an email, info at javimedia.net. You can listen to Deep Spinach on popular podcast platforms, including iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, and Pandora. Send us a postcard, artwork, photos of strange creatures caught on camera, or any other curiosity you can think of to Javi Media Network, P.O. Box 519, Mead, Colorado, 80542. And as always, thanks for listening. Javi Media.